guess what? Life as a stewardship is going to be a three-part study. <laughs> Open up your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 16. In our lesson last week, which was part one of Life as a Stewardship, we took a look at the Lord's parable of the shrewd steward, where he spoke a story, a parable, about a manager of a rich man's estate who, although unjust and dishonest and selfish, was commended, in verse 8, by his boss, who he had ripped off, but yet the boss commended the steward for his shrewdness, his practical worldly wisdom. It was not his unrighteous character, his selfishness that was commended, but it was his clever use of opportunities to prepare for his future security in this life. He was, remember we talked about this Greek word? He was phronimos wise, which means, at least he was after he was called to give an account, as it says in verse 2, he became phronimos wise, which means that he he became practically wise. He became worldly wise, shrewdly wise. But he still was not sophos wise. Remember we talked about the word sophos, which is where we get the name Sophia, But the word Sophia means wisdom. He didn't have Sophos wisdom, but he did have Phronimos wisdom. In other words, before he was called to give an account, he was a foolish fool because he wasn't even living for this life. So he was a Phronimos, or no, he was a Moros Moron. You know, the word fool in Greek is M-O-R-O-N, moron. So he was a, a foolish fool. But after he was asked to give an account, he became a phronimos, a practically wise moron. <laughs> but he still wasn't a sophos, Sophia. He wasn't a wise, a godly, because he didn't, he didn't plan ahead for his eternal future. Now, he could have. Remember when he finally got, his, got started thinking? And he thought, well, what am I going to do? And he said, oh, I know what I'll do. He could have changed at that point of time by begging his master's forgiveness and asking for, uh, for uh, mercy. And he could have become, you know, godly wise, but he chose not to. So he did not have godly wisdom to prepare for his eternal future. He only prepared himself for his future in his own generation. He was a child of this world. Now, Christ's disciples, the Lord went on to tell them, remember he was speaking primarily to them, were to use riches and to use opportunities for good spiritual purposes, such as bringing people to Christ, edifying their fellow believers, and glorifying God. And they were to do so with the fervency and with the foresight that the shrewd steward displayed. Certainly not his flawed character, but his fervency and his foresight. Disciples of Christ, we talked about all this last week, this is just a quick review, are to make money their friend. We are to make money our friend and we're to make money our servant so as to help others both physically and much more importantly, to um, make friends spiritually. If we do, then when we eclipse, look at the word uh, in verse 9. We discuss the fact that that meant when we, we fail, when we die, we will find many everlasting habitations welcoming us. 
A right use of our money in this world from right motives will be for the benefit of the world to come. Now, the purpose of this life, I hope you all understand, is for personal holiness that we might be made more like Jesus Christ, and it is for internal investment. Our lives and everything else that we have and that we are now privileged to enjoy, including our own children, is a stewardship responsibility. Nothing belongs to us, not even our children. It's all about a stewardship responsibility, and we're to be using those things we are privileged to enjoy. To, uh, we're to be using them wisely by investing them for the Lord. And if we prove faithful over the few things that in, are entrusted to our care now, what is the Lord's promise? One day we will later hear him say, you know, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. And even in this world, if we prove faithful over a, a few things, he will give us bigger and bigger responsibilities. But no man, and this is where we ended our lesson last week in verse 13, Jesus said again, he had also said this in the Sermon on the Mount, no man can serve God and also be the servant of money or mammon at the same time. Why? Well, because the word servant is bond slave. You can't be a slave to two masters. Um, and God demands total allegiance. Doesn't he demand all of our heart, all of our soul, our mind, and our strength? And he will have no other what before him? He will have no other gods before him. You cannot serve God and also mammon, you know, because that would be putting another god before him or at least at the side of, of him. Actually, in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, which we will be looking at this morning in just a few more sentences, Jesus teaches that since money cannot save, have you ever gone by and seen a billboard that says money saves? <laughs> no, because it doesn't. Since money cannot save one's soul, there is eternal danger in being enslaved to it. But are there a lot of people enslaved to money? Oh, yes. Now, it was at this point then in the Lord's teaching, at the end of verse 13, that the Pharisees, whose love of money was so deep-rooted in both their theology and in their practice, that we find they reacted negatively. They've been quiet for quite a while, which is, you know, unusual, but um, in verse 14, we find that they, even though they might not have been saying anything to him, they were speaking among themselves and their faces were showing sneering. They, it says, derided him, which literally means they turned up their noses at him. Verse 14, who was he to talk to them about money? After all, he was just a poor Galilean carpenter's son who was being followed around by a group of other poor men, you know, a bunch of, of um, fishermen from Galilee, and yet he had the nerve to teach them about money. And knowing, of course, because he's omniscient, knows everything, knowing the reason for their derision, we find that he rebuked them. Now, he did not rebuke them for deriding him. He didn't rebuke them because they turned up their noses and sneered at him. He rebuked them because they had deceived themselves. They were deceiving themselves. They were very good at deceiving themselves. They had stretched the covenant promise of God, where God had said to Israel, this is a national promise, he had said, if you obey me, I will what? I will bless you. If you obey me, Israel, I will bless you. They had taken that promise of God, and they had stretched it to the point where they actually taught that 
one's indiv- an individual's material wealth was a sure sign of God's approval and God's blessing. Their unbiblical motto became, whom the Lord loveth, he maketh rich. That was their motto. Now, you won't find that in the Bible because it's not biblical, but that was their motto. And therefore, you see, they, the religious rulers in general, there was always exceptions, but they greatly sought for material possessions and wealth, not only to selfishly enjoy, but also to parade before others so that other people would say, oh, they're so spiritual. Look how rich they are. They must be spiritual. And this wrong attitude about wealth was why it was or is the focus of so many of the Lord's parables. If you take all the Lord's parables and put them together, you'd be amazed how many of them have to do with the subject of wealth and money. So this is where we left off in our last lesson. So let's look at verses 14 to 18 to learn of the Lord's response to the Pharisees' derision of him. Starting in verse 14, it says, And the Pharisees also who were covetous, you might want to underline that, who were covetous, heard all these things, everything he had been saying since uh, verse 1 of this chapter, and they derided him. If you want to put down, that means sneered or put their noses up at him. And he said unto them, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. In other words, a lot of things are totally topsy-turvy from what the world thinks, aren't they? Those that the world esteems many times are abominable in the sight of God. And then in verse 16, he says, The law and the prophets were until John, speaking of John the Baptist. He was the last Old Testament prophet. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. You don't have to be wealthy to press into it. Every man can press into the kingdom of God. Verse 17, he repeats what he had said over in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 17 and 18. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass than one tittle, one tiny little dot on an eye of the law to fail. Whosoever putteth away his wife and marrieth another committeth adultery. And whosoever marrieth her that is put away from her husband committeth adultery. Now that looks like it's, wow, what is he speaking about that all of a sudden? It looks like it's totally out of context, doesn't it? That's why you come to Bible study, so you can say, why is that verse in there? (laughs) All right. Um, In these verses that I just read, verses 14 to 18, Jesus said to the Pharisees that they might do their best to justify themselves and their true inward love of money before others, but who knows their hearts? Of course, he knew them. God knew them. And God was not and is not with other people like them at all impressed with outward appearances or wealth. The heart is what makes a person acceptable to God, not money. Whether rich or poor, it doesn't matter. We are responsible to be righteous stewards of whatever we have. And we are to know that God judges the inward man. If you've been in this Bible study long enough, you all know that, especially if you went with us through the Sermon on the Mount. He looks at the heart. In spite of, of all their um, religious, rigorous practices and all of their many do's and don'ts, Israel's religious rulers loved money. And they cultivated values that were unjust and ungodly, just like this shrewd steward. With their lips, of course, they gave praise and honor to God, but with their wealth, they lived exactly like the world. 
They prided themselves, as we know, on their knowledge of God and on their obedience, their external obedience to the law and the prophets, but they did not receive the Savior of whom the law and the prophets spoke. The scripture, the whole Old Testament scripture, speaks of who? The fulfiller of the law and the prophets speaks of Jesus Christ. The one, John the Baptist, who was the last Old Testament prophet, pointed to. He's the one who introduced Israel to her long-awaited Messiah. He's the one who introduced the world to her Savior. So instead of trying to justify themselves with the law by, by way of all their twisted reinterpretations of the law like on this issue of money, the Pharisees should have been listening to the fulfiller of the law, Christ himself, and they should have been pressing into the kingdom. Remember when he said, strive to enter in on the narrow road that leadeth to life? They should have been trying to press into the kingdom, which is, as I said when I read it, open to every man, everyone, not only Gentile and Jew, but rich and poor, um, female, male, Samaritan, everyone. Well, in verse 18, Jesus gave just one example. Well, this is where the thing on marriage and divorce ties in. He gave just one example. And now elsewhere in his teaching, he gives other examples. But here he gives just one as to how the Pharisees could not possibly justify themselves by the law. In other words, how they could not possibly claim to deserve heaven because of their perfect, uh, meticulous obedience to the law. And that one, just one example that he gave had to do with the subject of divorce and remarriage. Now, to divorce and remarry, as you can see if you look at verse 18, constituted adultery. Now, there, are, there is an exception found over in Matthew 19, verses 1 to 12. And um, I'm not going to get into this whole subject because we would be here for at least two or three weeks. Um, and we did do this. We have a study out there on, that you can order or buy off the tape table that is called God's Position on Divorce. And we go through all the passages in the Old Testament and the first message and all the passages in the New Testament on the second tape, CD, and talk about God's position on divorce and remarriage, et cetera, et cetera, and what are, what's an exception and all of that. So you can get those out there. And I'm not going to get into that this morning. But to divorce and remarry constituted adultery, except for that one exception. And many, as we learned in that study, many of Israel's religious rulers uh, took a very loose view of divorce. Even though they acknowledged that a man should not commit, or a woman, adultery, yet they, they very easily condoned a man's divorce of his present wife. Now, a woman back in the Jewish times that we're talking about couldn't divorce her husband. So we're only going to talk about the man divorcing his wife. But they made it so easy that a man could divorce his wife just for about any reason. It's kind of like a no fault. You know, if she burned a toast or talked bad about his mother, he could, he could write out a bill of divorcement. And, uh, or if another younger woman came along and he just wanted to get rid of his, his present wife, he filled out a bill of divorcement. They made it very easy. And in doing that, they felt like they were avoiding the issue of adultery, that they weren't being adulterers because they had this bill of adultment. Uh, um, <laughs> bill of, <laughs> I like that, bill of divorcement. So this one sample, this one example that he gives here about divorce and remarriage fits in very well with the sin of covetousness. 
which really is the subject being addressed in this whole section, isn't it? You know, the sin of covetousness. They, they, they coveted mammon. They coveted wealth. Well, they also had another problem with covetousness in coveting that which belonged to someone else, such as someone else's wife or another woman other than their own wife. Their reinterpretation regarding marriage, Jesus was pointing out to them, was just one of many ways that they tried to justify themselves and their own personal lusts in the eyes of men. But they were not at all justified before God. And the Pharisees themselves did this. They not only allowed other people to do it, but they were constantly divorcing their wives and marrying other, other women. Well, the seriousness of the matter of righteous versus wrong stewardship and the use and abuse of riches and opportunities is brought to a climax by the Lord's next parable. And that is a very famous parable called the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And its emphasis here is on not only stewardship, responsibility, the subject of rich and poor and heaven and hell. The subject, the emphasis is on judgment, hell, Hades, really. Now, because this is the only parable or story where a specific name is given, whose name is given in this parable? The poor man. Lazarus's name is given. Because of that, it's the only parable with a name, with a proper name given. Some Bible scholars have suggested that this is not a parable, but that it is the account of an actual event. Um, and furthermore, they point out that he doesn't say that this is a parable. There was a certain rich man, he just goes on. But a lot of his parables, he doesn't say that it's a parable. For example, the rich steward just starts out by saying, I mean, the shrewd steward, there was a certain rich man. So that isn't enough to go on. But there are many who will say that this isn't a parable. It's, it's an actual, literal account that really took place. And it may well be. Very well may be. I mean, after all, God sees, Jesus sees everything. He can see into this world just as easily as he can see into the underworld and just as easily as he can see into heaven. So he could have seen all this going on, and this could be a real account, as some of his other parables very well could be other accounts, such as the parable of the prodigal son. Now, that could be a true story that he knew about, a man who had two sons and one wanted his inheritance early. I mean, even the Good Samaritan could be an actual literal account, couldn't it? Very easily could be. Um, yet this is the only one where, this is the only quote-unquote parable where a specific name is given, and I believe there are a number of good reasons why Lazarus's name is included in this particular account. And we are going to discuss those reasons this morning. Now, this is one of your extra homework questions. You answer the questions from 7 to 10, right? 7 to 10 in your, in your homework. And then add this one. Why do you think that Lazarus's name was included in this parable or, or true life account? Now, before we actually read the parable or the story or the real life account, whatever you want to call it, I do want to mention that the significant feature of it is that it does indeed give us a glimpse of life after death. In the parables of Luke 15, which we closed last year's study with back in May, we had, remember, the window of heaven drawn aside so that we could get a glimpse of the over-the-top rejoicing of God and all the heavenly angels in his presence whenever a sinner repents 
and is saved. Now here again, we find the veil of the invisible world drawn aside for just a moment and we learn something about the immense contrast between the future tranquility of the righteous or the saved and the future eternal torment of the unrighteous, the unsaved. It's a very serious parable. There's the world of, of, of tranquility and there's the world of torment. And men have to choose, don't they? As for me and my house, I choose the Lord. Tranquility over torment any day. But it's a dram dramatic difference. That not a person, I would say, in existence can afford to ignore or take lightly. You know, mankind's fascination. If we had advertised it today, we were going to be talking about the afterlife. We probably could have packed the place out. You know, we put it in the local newspaper or something. Man's fascination with life after death has led one cultural stream of people to believe in a wide variety of seriously dangerous pseudo-sources of information, such as looking into uh, spirit guides and channelers, people who talk to the dead. I mean, you're, you know, you're getting into the occult. That's why this is seriously dangerous. Um, ascended masters, and of course, there's all kinds of books. If you go to the bookstore, there's all kinds of books you can find on, on uh, near-death experiences and after-death experiences. And all the spirituality of the New Age promises are out there of astral projection and soul travel and psychic energy and cosmic adventure and, of course, uh, reincarnation, which is nothing but modern-day repackaged Hinduism. Um, and all these subjects, all these after-death subjects, um, deliberately avoid the Bible's clear teaching about the reality of heaven and hell. And then, of course, there is another large sec section of the population that consists of, of atheists and agnostics and humanists and naturalists and um, secularists and philosophers who think that any talk of life after death is absolutely um, foolish ludicrous where they say that when a man dies kaput that's it nothing remember Carl Sagan some of you remember Carl Sagan had the program called the cosmos you know that's what he taught there's nothing more than the cosmos after death nothing now who would you rather listen to all those people or would you rather listen to the one reliable source of information for such such a subject um, and that one reliable source would be the one who is the resurrection and the life himself, the Lord Jesus, the one who is the death conqueror, the one who has been there. I'd rather listen to him, wouldn't you? The only one who's ever lived who has an empty tomb. By his resurrection from death, he proved his authority to speak on this subject. And by his sinless life and his unsurpassed teaching, which was confirmed, all of his teaching was confirmed by his miraculous power over every single realm of life, including death, and by his fulfillment of all messianic prophecies uh, um, of scripture, he's the only one who fulfills all those prophecies. He alone demonstrates, at least in my thinking, 
which I think I know is right. (laughs) He alone demonstrates that he knows what he's talking about on this subject of life after death. So if you want to know something about the afterlife, he is really the only one, the only reliable one to listen to. So let's hear what he has to say about the afterlife in this parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Look with me. Now we're only going to get, and I hope I can even get that far, to verse 23 as we comment on it, do our commentary, our discussion. But I do want to read the whole parable to begin with in its, so we see it in its whole context. So look with me, starting at verse 19. Jesus says, There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared, that means he ate, sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate, the rich man's gate, full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he, the rich man, cried, former rich man, (laughs) cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot. Neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him, speaking of Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he, the former rich man, said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he, Abraham, said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. How true, how true. Well, in this account, Jesus presents a study in contrast between a certain rich man and a beggar named Lazarus. Now, the rich man is described first, you notice, at least while in this life. He is described first, so we will begin with him. Uh, First, I want to point out that the Greek word which is translated rich gives us our English word plutocrat. How many of you know what a plutocrat is? Has nothing to do with Mickey Mouse either. A plutocrat (laughs) speaks of an extremely wealthy person. And this particular plutocrat made an ostentatious display of his accumulated wealth as he daily paraded around in what kind of clothing? Purple and fine linen. So I said, this particular plutocrat paraded in purple. (laughs) Try saying that five times in a row. Now, purple, you know, was considered, well, it was a very, very, it was like high fashion designer 
expensive clothes of that day. It was the whatever, you know, the Gucci of that day. Um, it, the extreme costliness of the true sea purple in antiquity is very well known. If you remember Lydia, how many of you remember Lydia? She was Paul's first convert in Philippi. Lydia was a very wealthy woman. Why? Because she was a seller of purple. She sold purple. So it was uh, the wealthy people who paraded around in purple. It was the <laughs> it was the plutocrats. And fine linen was also very expensive, and uh, it was worn only by princes and priests and those who were very rich. Now, the words was clothed are given in, in the imperfect tense in the Greek, which tells us that this was the ongoing attire of this man. Even when he ran down to Walmart, he was parading in his purple and his fine linen. He didn't just wear those expensive designer jeans and shirts on special occasions. He wore them daily. Well, this man was also, we are told, able to indulge himself with his food. He fared sumptuously every day. You notice it says every day. And those words literally mean that he daily made merry in, in splendorous feasting which does not imply noble living because noble living would not spend this lavishly. He, it implies in the Greek, you don't see it so much, but it implies the kind of lifestyle that includes, you know, just constant feasting with wine and women and song. So this was a par partying particular plutocrat who paraded around in purple. <laughs> he enjoyed comf his comfortable surroundings. He enjoyed the rich food, and, uh, and he probably got pretty big. He enjoyed all of his self-indulgent luxury. He basked in his affluence, and he loved to show it off. All his money was wasted, and all his money was spent in the satisfaction of his own desires. And, as we will see, without any concern, really, for the needs of others who were less for fortunate than him. Influenced by the Pharisaic theology of his day, and this man, this rich man, was Jewish. How do we know that? Because he calls Abraham Father Abraham. Rich, the rich man and Lazarus are both Jewish in this account. And um, that is symbolized by the presence there of Abraham and him calling him father. Well, according to the Pharisaic theology of his day, this wealthy man would have thought of himself as righteous before God. After all, you know, whom the Lord loveth, he maketh rich. However, by the fact that he showed no mercy toward his fellow man, whose great need he could not help but see daily as he paraded around in his purple, you know, because every time he passed in and out of his house, he passed by who? Lazarus, who was out at his gate. Um, but, but by, you know, not showing any mercy toward this man, he demonstrated that he did not love his neighbor as himself. He had no concept of stewardship, or he would have used some of his wealth to help this poor man Lazarus, who was definitely made his neighbor. I mean, it made it really obvious because people put him right there at the rich man's gate. So he gave evidence 
the rich man that he was not righteous in the sight of God. And of course, this is further evidence to us by where he goes after he dies. He goes to, the, to Hades, the bad part of Hades. Now, how, how many of you have ever heard of a famous 19th century writer who wrote a book called Walden? His name was Henry David Thoreau. I remember having to study him and read that book when I was in college. Well, when Mr. Thoreau lay on his deathbed, a minister of God, who was his friend, tried to urge him to be ready for death by asking him, do you know where you're going in the next world? And Thoreau waved off the minister just with a, a casual wave of his hand and said, one world at a time. And to this day, humanists hold up Henry David Thoreau as an example of great moral courage. Of course, they also say he was a great writer, which I didn't particularly care for his writing, but um, they hold him up as an example of great moral courage in that he resisted the cowardly approach to cling to religion at the last feasible moment. Now, do you think this is an example of great wisdom? To me, this is nothing but an example of a fool. Would you think wisely of a person who, let's say, was getting on an airplane in Hawaii, dressed in shorts and a you know, Hawaiian shirt, getting on a plane in air, uh, airplane in Hawaii that's uh, bound for Alaska in the middle of winter, and this person is taking no luggage with them at all. And so you go up to them and you ask them, do you know where you're going? And they, with just a casual wave of their hand, they answer you by saying, one city at a time, my friend. Now, would you think that person was a great example <laughs> of moral courage and, and wisdom? No, you would think he was a fool because he had no plan uh, you know, for what was inevitable when he would get off of the plane in Alaska in the middle of winter. Well, in stark contrast to the rich man of this story, Jesus then told of a certain beggar named Lazarus who was laid at the gate of this rich man. Now, this didn't talk about, this wasn't referring to the rich man's front door because he would never allow for that. But the rich man had apparently a big property, and so the outward gate was where where this um, this poor man was uh, laid. And we are told that he was full of sores. It's interesting that Luke told us that. Remember, Luke was a Greek physician, and he actually used a medical term for those sores, which tells us that they were ulcerated sores that were oozing. Kind of nasty, gross. But So the rich man, as I said, didn't even need to seek out his neighbor in order to show mercy. The neighbor had been laid right there at his gate. And it's interesting, the rich man showed no mercy at all to this um, poor, poor man. But the first thing he asked for when he's down in hell, I'll call it hell for, it's really Hades, but first thing he asked for is mercy <laughs> and from Lazarus. But anyway, um, the rich man would have had many stewardship opportunities to use his wealth wisely you know, to obey the righteousness that the law demanded, but he had consist consistently failed to do so. He did not help out this poor guy. Again, in conjunction with the Pharisaic theology of that day, the rich man would have looked upon the poor man as one who was unrighteous. 
You know, he was just reaping what he had sown in some, uh, for some terrible sin in his life. That's what they taught. Didn't we learn this when we looked at John chapter 9 and the account of the man who had been born blind? They thought he was just reaping some sin from a previous life. They was reaping in this life or that his parents had sinned or, um, or, or whatever. But, um, so that would have been his thinking. Well, this guy's just, he's, he deserves what, he, what he's suffering here. The rich man and all of his rich friends that he partied with every day, much like the priest and the Levi, um, probably just passed by on the other side of this guy. You know how the priest and Levi passed by the man who had been beaten and robbed on the road to Jericho? They probably saw Lazarus laying there and passed by and went through the, to the rich man's house on the other side every day. The rich man never would have guessed that this poor fellow covered with all of his oozing sores was a true son of Abraham because of his faith in God. And by the way, the word that we see translated here as beggar, see beggar, it speaks of Lazarus as being a beggar, I think a couple times, is really the word poor. In 31 of the 32 times that this Greek word is found in the New Testament, 31 of the 32, it is always, it is translated as poor. Only here do they translate it as beggar. And I really think it should be the word poor. The man did not of his own accord go to the rich man's gate in order to beg. We find out that he had been taken there by others. Actually, he had been cast there. And the Greek words, sorry, I always have to go back to the Greek. You know, those of you who are new, the New Testament was written in Greek. And that tells us a whole lot more when we look at what the actual Greek words say. The Greek words for was laid indicate rude treatment. Vincent's word studies tell us that it means that this man, Lazarus, was thrown down. He was cast carelessly down by those who bore him and left him there alone. And another word study that I looked up says that it means he was flung down. So those who took Lazarus to the rich man's gate, he didn't, he didn't carry himself there. He couldn't walk, apparently. He had to be carried there. And those who took him there didn't do so with kindness. And that wouldn't that only add to Lazarus's pain and suffering? Um, and we learn, too, that he couldn't even shoo away the dogs. We read about dogs who came and licked his ulcerated sores. So he was, he was in bad shape. I mean, he... He not only was covered with his sores, he couldn't walk, but he, he couldn't. He was so weak and emaciated that he couldn't even chew away the dogs. So he would have been in an, in, in an extremely uncomfortable um, position, and he must have been horrible to look at. I kind of think of Job, don't you? Just covered with, with boils. Must have been awful to look at, and what else? Don't you think that there would have been a terrible odor about him? And that would probably account for why the men who carried him flung him down and, and then promptly left. You know, they were anxious to be rid of him. I don't know where he had been, but he didn't go to the rich man's house to beg. He was a poor man who other people just thought, well, we'll get rid of him from where he was, and maybe the rich man in his mercy will drop some crumbs to him. But he didn't. So this guy, Lazarus, was in a stricken state. He was isolated. He was unable to provide for himself. It was just a bad, bad situation. None of us would want to be there, would we? Would you want to be in his shoes? No. Yet, all was not lost. 
and the hint we have of this man's true condition is given to us in his name. I'm glad Jesus included his name. Uh, it's, as I said, the only personal name given in a gospel parable, so there must be some significance to it, and there is. For one thing, the name Lazarus is the shortened form of the, it's the shortened Greek form of the Hebrew name Eliezer. Remember we talked about Eliezer, who was a steward of Abraham last week. The name Eliezer, I guess they would shorten it instead of Eliezer, they'd say the Lazarus, you know, Lazary or whatever. But it's a shortened name. And you know what it means? God is my help. It's a beautiful name. God is my help. This man, Lazarus, obviously had godly parents. I mean, they're the ones who named him God is my help. And uh, this was probably a factor in him being a godly man, even though, just like Job, he was plagued with great loss and disease. It's interesting that there are two other Eliezers in Scripture besides this one. There's this one in the parable, one I just mentioned, who was Eliezer, the steward of Abraham, back in Genesis 15, too. And isn't it interesting that uh, Jesus is speaking in these Luke 16 parables about stewardship, it's all about stewardship, and he um, talks about not only Lazarus in this parable, which reminds us of, of Eliezer, the steward of Abraham, but in this parable, doesn't he also mention Abraham? Abraham, I think, is mentioned six times in this parable. Now, who is the other, you all know, who the other Lazarus in Scripture is? Right, exactly. Lazarus, uh, the other Lazarus mentioned, there's three Lazaruses. The other one is going to be the subject of our next study in the chronological life of Jesus Christ. Now, if we weren't going through our, all four Gospels at the same time, you know, not the same time, but one week we might be in Luke and the next week we might be in Matthew, etc., etc., we would never know this. But do you know what the very next, you can look in your books and see what the very next subject is going to be after we finish these Luke 16 parables? The next thing that happened in the Lord's chronological life was the raising of Lazarus from the dead. We go from Luke 17, verse 10, over to John 11 where we'll see Lazarus, not the same Lazarus. Now, some people have said it's the same Lazarus in this parable. Lazarus, but there, there's so many differences. This Lazarus had five brothers. The Lazarus who was raised from the dead in John chapter 11 had two sisters. No mention of brothers. This one was poor. That one was affluent. There's a lot of differences. Not the same Lazarus. But it is interesting that uh, that Lazarus, who we will talk about next, truly found out that God is his help, just as his name signifies. So what makes the, what makes the Lord's mention of this poor man's name more interesting is that the rich man in Hades asked that Lazarus be risen from the dead so that he could go and preach repentance to his five yet living brothers so that they would not join him down there in the torment of Hades. And uh, isn't that interesting? Because Jesus actually did allow one named Lazarus to come back from the dead to preach 
to this rich man's brothers, the Jewish people, about, you know, repentance and that, you know, there is a life after death, etc., etc. And yet, what did they want to do with him? It's everything that Abraham said was true. You know, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe even though one rose from the dead. What did they want to do with Lazarus? They wanted to kill. Not only did they want to kill the one who rose him from the dead, who actually himself rose from the dead, and people are still making excuses, you know, that he didn't really. But they wanted to kill Lazarus, and we'll learn about that in a couple of weeks. They not only wanted to murder Jesus, but they wanted to murder Lazarus and just get rid of him. Isn't it interesting that the, um, the rich man in Hades, who was not at all interested really in spiritual things when he was in this world, is suddenly, when he's down in Hades, he suddenly becomes interested in prayer, because he's praying and he's asking for all of a sudden he's interested in mercy and he's interested in preaching send Lazarus to preach he's interested in evangelism he's interested in resurrection he's interested in repentance when he never had any uh, uh, demonstration of of interest in these matters before his death see things are going to change a lot for people in the afterlife aren't they Well, yet one further reason exists for why I believe that Jesus included the poor man's name, Lazarus, here. And um, and, and, uh, that's because this is a very unique account about the afterlife given to us by the one who is the resurrection and the life himself. And it is belief in him that puts a person's name where? in the book of life in the lamb's book of life you see we learned in john chapter 10 the good shepherd sermon that jesus knows every one of his sheep by by name right the rich man's name was probably very well known in his part of israel probably everybody knew his name but few if anybody cared about the poor beggar's name um And yet, in God's word, we don't find the rich man's name at all. We have no idea what his name was. The world might have known him back then. Of course, they've long forgotten about him, if this is a true account. But have had just some crumbs. Remember, the prodigal would would fain have had just some of the husks that the pigs were eating. This says that this poor man would have fain had just some of the crumbs from the rich man's table. The rich man could have easily sent out one of his servants after his daily parties, his feasts. He could have sent out a servant with some food scraps for this poor guy. But we are to understand from the literal words that this did not happen. He, he would have at least wanted some of those crumbs. You know, people back in that day didn't eat with forks and knives and spoons. They used their bread to eat their food, their sop up their food. And when they were through using the bread to eat their food, they threw the, would throw the bread down. Well, and that's all he wanted was just the, the leftover bread that they, they threw down. But this apparently didn't happen because this man's longing for some crumbs of bread remained unfulfilled and he did die we assume he died probably of starvation and even though it's often thought that the dogs who come along and lick his sores that they were just wild street dogs like were very common back in that day yet in this context it is better to suggest that these were the rich man's watchdogs 
Instead of a servant coming to Lazarus with the fallen table scraps, the dogs came from having, having eaten those scraps, and then they licked up the juices that oozed from this Lazarus's sores. So what the servants of the rich man did is they threw the bread out to the dogs who were at the gate. You know, they were watchdogs. The dogs ate the crumbs, and then for dessert, they, oh, won't even go there, but they... But, uh, and as I said, Lazarus was too emaciated to even fight the dogs off. But then some of the commentators said, well, the licking of the dogs probably was at, at least some comfort to him. You know, it might have helped relieve his, his pain. So the dogs really were probably kinder to him than, than the rich man had been. Well, we find that as there was a vast contrast regarding the lives, the earthly lives of the two men of this account, there's also a vast contrast regarding their deaths. Now, the rich man, you'll notice, might have been mentioned first in this life. Isn't he the one we're told about first, parading around in his purple? And then we're told about Lazarus. He might have been mentioned first in this life, but who is mentioned first in the next life? Proving again that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Lazarus is the one who we are told about first in the afterlife. We're told, and it is no wonder when we consider his condition, that the poor man died. And death would have been a great relief to poor Lazarus from all of his physical you know, body pain and his impotence and his hunger and his loneliness. Now, although his body was probably thrown into the local rubbish and refuse heap of fire, which was known as Gehenna, probably just thrown there. And again, notice how he would have been flung in. You know, wasn't he flung down at the rich man's gate and, and his body would have been taken because they didn't have burial for people like him. His body would have just been flung in in the uh, local refuse heap, heap of fire. Yet, and likely too, there would have been no funeral. There would have been no obituary in the, in the local newspaper about him. I mean, obviously he didn't have any friends, his family, his godly parents must have been deceased at this point in time. And yet, all of this, and uh, yet I doubt that Lazarus cared one single bit about all that because we are told his soul was instantly, in the twinkling of an eye, we don't read that, but we know that, that his soul was transported by an heavenly escort to where? To Abraham's bosom, which is um, also known as paradise, called paradise by the Lord Jesus himself. You see, at death, a believer is not left alone to find his way home. He's escorted by angels. And notice the difference in the contrasting verbs regarding the posthumous fates of Lazarus and the rich man that are given to us in verse 22. We read that in time, who else also died? You know, from God's perspective, life is just a vapor. Well, it gets to be that way even for us. But, you know, it might have been years later. But from God's perspective in time, you know, the, the rich man also died, we are told. Isn't death the great common denominator of all men? doesn't matter if you're rich or poor or famous or Henry David Thoreau or some nobody that <laughs> nobody knows about. Death is the great equalizer. The rich man also died. But what does it then say about him? All it says, verse 22, which he was buried. You know, which would you rather have say about, said about you? 
that you died and were carried or you died and were buried. I like the carried part myself. Now this rich man may have had, he probably did, he probably had a great and mighty funeral, you know, all uh, probably attended by all of his friends who he had uh, partied with for so long. I imagine he was probably even laid out in purple, don't you? And probably had a linen-lined coffin and a long obituary in the Jerusalem Post. And his funeral would have been attended by his five brothers who probably couldn't wait to take their first look at his will. <laughs> but all it says about him is that he was buried. He was not angelically accompanied to paradise. Big contrast, isn't there? Big contrast. John Butler says this. He said, men should not care nearly as much about who carries their body after death as about who carries their soul after death. Isn't that true? Well, the rich man's wealth did him no good whatsoever when the grim reaper came about, came around. The poor man, we find, was far better off in death than the rich man had ever been in life. So don't think that it wasn't fair, you know, that the rich, ungodly man lived a longer life than the poor Lazarus. That is not inequity. That is just further evidence of God's grace in giving the ungodly more time to repent. You know, you might read about some of these people who totally godless and they live to be in their 90s and hundreds and you say well that's not fair when you know someone really godly who died maybe in their 20s but it's a it's a issue of god's grace you know where he's extending their life to give them more time to repent however we find that the extra time for this rich man did him no good because we are told he went to hell now there are uh, two greek words for hell in the new testament there is hades and gehenna the word that is used here is Hades. Hades is the temporary abode of the souls of the lost. And uh, before the ascension of Christ, it was also the temporary abode of the souls of the saved. You see in the Old Testament, it's really hot in here, isn't it? I see some of you, not really roasting, but anyway. Um, before Christ ascended to heaven, all souls of all people, whether they were saved or lost, they all went to Hades. We always affiliate the name Hades with, with hell. But before Christ's ascension, there was a good part of Hades and there was a bad part of Hades. Hades consisted of two parts. The good side of Hades here in this parable is called Abraham's bosom, which was a common name that the Jews called it because Abraham was, of course, their, their father of faith, and it was a name that they connected with all the righteous children of, of Abraham, the father of, of faith. Actually, the word bosom is the Greek word paraclete. It's talking about going to Abraham's side. Who else is called the paraclete? The Holy Spirit. It means the comforter. So it's speaking of a place of comfort. You know, at the side of Abraham doesn't mean everybody that went there laid down at the, you know, on the chest of Abraham. It's just speaking of a place of comfort and, um, and rest. And uh, it's called paradise by none other but than the Lord Jesus himself. So there, the good side of, of Hades was called either Abraham's bosom or paradise. Now the bad side of Hades 
is not the final abode of the unrighteous. Although, you know, it's where all the unrighteous Old Testament people went, and it is still today where all lost people go. All lost people go to the, the, the bad compartment, the place of torment, called Hades. And they will stay there until they appear before the great white throne judgment, which doesn't occur until after the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year kingdom. And then they will be cast into what? The lake of fire, which is the final abode of the unrighteous. And it is also called hell, uh, which is the Greek word Gehenna. Now, the lake of fire or hell is the second death. The first death is going to that bad compartment of Hades. The second death is after they appear before the great, great white throne judgment and they are cast forever permanently into the lake of fire. That is the second death. And um, there are degrees of suffering in Gehenna, the, um, the lake of fire. There are degrees. Now, there aren't degrees of suffering in the bad compartment of Hades today, but there will be degrees of suffering in the lake of fire. I know this is confusing, but Hades, the bad side today. Now, the, the good side of Hades today, is it got people in it or not? The good side of Hades, Abraham's bosom, paradise. Is there anybody in it today? No, it's totally empty because after Jesus died, he, ascent, he descended down into paradise. Remember what he told the thief on the cross? You know, I'll be with you today in paradise. He went down into paradise and took with him you know, all those who had been captive there. I mean, they weren't like prisoners. They were having a great time in Abraham's bosom. But he took all of them, which would include Lazarus, the poor man, and he carried them with him into the presence of God the Father so that today they are in the third heaven with God the Father. Before, they couldn't be in the Father's presence because they were awaiting the, the being atoned for. They, were, they had to be covered with the blood, and he hadn't yet shed his blood, so they couldn't appear in God's presence. They were down there with Abraham and all the other Old, Old Testament saints from Adam on. But now, today, when a person dies, we are absent from the body, and where? Do we go in a holding compartment? No, we are present with the Lord. We go instantly into the, the third heaven. So we could say that Hades, the bad compartment of Hades, is like a county jail where a criminal is held until his day in court before the judge, after which he is then sentenced to the state penitentiary, penitentiary, or however you pronounce it, with a life sentence. <laughs> the difference, however, is that no one in Hades, the bad section, is ever acquitted all in Hades, the bad section, are guilty and all will be condemned. Not just with a life sentence, but with an eternal sentence. And what is their sin? Exactly, their sin is the rejection of the only one who ever died to save them from paying the death sentence eternally for their sins. Their, their sin is rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ, the one and only Savior. Now, according to Pharisaic to teaching, the rich Jewish man should have gone um, to Abraham's side, right? Wouldn't that be what the Pharisees would say? Well, he was rich. 
You know, after all, don't his riches demonstrate God's pleasure with him? Was that true? No, we find out from the Lord's teaching here is totally wrong. Jesus was teaching that wealth is not necessarily a sign of God's approval, nor is the possession of wealth a guarantee of one's entrance into God's presence. Now, of course, it wasn't the rich man's wealth that sent him to Hades, was it? I mean, you can't say that all rich people are going to go to hell because who was there on the good side? A very, very rich man was on the good side. Abraham was one of the wealthiest men that ever were. So in other words, it isn't your richness or your poorness that sends you to heaven or hell. It's unbelief that sends a person to hell and faith that carries him to heaven. Faith in God, God's word and God's son, the true Messiah. Lazarus had believed God and he trusted that ultimately God was his helper, as his name said. In fact, God was his savior. As we'll see, however, the uh, rich man did not believe God or we, he would have obeyed God in this life. In fact, you're going to learn a lot of interesting things next week. I hope you come back because, wow, I found out things I never knew. As I looked at the conversation that this rich man has with Abraham, we're going to see what the unrighteous think in hell. You know what? I found out they don't really change very much at all. He still demonstrates contempt of God's word, even in the torment of Hades. Well, Lazarus's location at uh, Abraham's side not only expresses intimacy and comfort, but possibly also expresses a, uh, a meal setting. Remember John, the apostle who was at the Last Supper, leaning against the Lord's chest they were at a meal so it, it implies here that they're at a great banquet feast down there in paradise so that's nice because you know finally Lazarus is being nourished not just by the crumbs that he desired in this life but at a full banquet banquet feast with Abraham and maybe they were all dressed up in purple for all we know I don't know <laughs> do we eat in heaven do we get to eat in heaven the good news is yes we get to eat in heaven it wouldn't be heaven if we didn't get to eat, right? So he went from the gutter of the earth to the head table of paradise. Now, as great as this after-death experience of Lazarus is, it pales to the New Testament believer's experience. Because you know what? As we just mentioned, you and I aren't going to just depart to be with Adam and Noah and, and Abraham and all those other wonderful Old Testament saints, we are going to depart to be with who? With the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Remember Paul was in a strait betwixt two. He wanted to stay with the Philippians because they still needed him, but he really in his heart wanted to depart and be with Christ because it's, he said it was far better. Our beloved sister, Betty Reen Richardson, you know what, if we could call her back, she wouldn't want to come. She's where she is far better, far better off. All right, um, back to the, um, okay. On the other hand, the rich man who had, who had dined sumptuously every single day of his life in his purple robes, robes, now it says he lifted up his eyes being in torments and he saw afar off Abraham with Lazarus at his side. God, you know what this tells us? God is the God of the living. 
isn't he? Who's there? Abraham. Remember how Jesus said to the Pharisees that God is the God of the living because he is the, is the God of Abraham? It says, uh, and the God of Isaac. He doesn't say he was the God of Abraham. Abraham is not dead. Abraham is still alive. Isaac is still alive. He is the God of Abraham. He was not, he is not, was the God of Abraham. <laughs> so he's the God of the living. They're just, they're even more alive now than they were when they were here. But anyway, um, all right, so this, this account of afterlife by the one who knows what he's talking about, the Lord Jesus, tells us that not only were there two sections of Hades that were afar off from one another, and by the way, Ephesians 4, 9 tells us where Hades is located, in the lower parts of the earth. You know, they found out that in the middle of the earth there's great fire. Well, Hades is located in the lower parts of the earth. That's why after the, um, the great white throne judgment and, you know, the, the, this earth is burned up, there's nothing left of it, there has to be a new place for all the souls of the unrighteous because this earth is gone. So Hades is gone and they're cast instead into the lake of fire. Something else I got thinking about, it's awful, I've been thinking about hell all week, but, you know, a lot of people <laughs> have been, and that wasn't because I was taking too, care of two sick grandchildren either. But um, the other thing I was thinking about is a lot of people have a picture because of, I think, Dante's Inferno book, you know, the Satan running around with horns and the, the tail and tormenting people in hell and all the demons tormenting people in Hades. Do you know what? Hades, throughout all, since the beginning of time to this very day, to the time of the great white throne judgment, Hades, period, never has demons in it much less devil, the, uh, the devil. Do you know the demons are not confined to Hades down there tormenting people like this rich man? Where are they? They're here in this, in this world tormenting us and tormenting, you know, he's the prince of the power of the air. Satan hasn't been cast into the lake of fire yet, and neither have his demons. Now there are some demons who are bound in the bottomless pit. They're described as locusts with scorpion tails who will be let out in, in the tribulation. And there are four who I think are bound at the Euphrates River, but there are no demons in Hades, and there never will be. They'll all be in the lake of fire. The lake of fire is going to be horrendous. Hades is bad enough as we see this rich man being tormented. Not only does it say he's in torment, but he's being tormented. What, what is he being tormented by? Not the demons. I think his own mind, his own conscience. And, of course, the fire, which is nothing like it will be in the lake of fire. But anyway, there's two compartments, we are told, and they're afar off. And between them, verse 26 tells us, there is a great gulf fixed from which one, you know, even if one wanted to pass, even if Lazarus, who in his mercy probably would have gone over and dipped his finger in water and put it on the tongue of the rich man. But Abraham said, even if one wanted to come over and do that, he couldn't because there was a great gulf, it says, verse 26, that they which would pass from hence to you cannot. Um, so there's no way to get from one compartment to the other. And that speaks of confinement, which is not a problem for the righteous, or wasn't back when they were in the good part of Hades, because they were in comfort and ease and pleasure and enjoying themselves. 
But this confinement is a problem for the unrighteous because it means that their eternal destiny is sealed. No traffic ever moves between heaven and hell. The lost have no hope. Sometimes when you're just laying there thinking, don't you hope that maybe, maybe after years and years and years of learning their lesson that maybe somewhere in infinity future, God will say, okay, you guys have suffered long enough. I'll let you out and come to heaven. That isn't going to happen. There is never any hope of moving into the abode of the saved. And there is never any the comfort for us is that the saved will never one day in eternity far future be cast into the place of the damned. So you know what this eliminates? This eliminates totally the doctrine of purgatory, which um, is a false doctrine. It's an unbiblical doctrine that says that there is a, a temporary suffering um, in Hades and um, that those people can be prayed out of Hades and into heaven or, you know, maybe if enough masses are said on their behalf that they can get out of hell. But there is no such teaching in the scripture. It is totally unbiblical. Well, we're going to stop for there. Um, we're going to learn a lot more things next week. We're going to le learn that um, there is no such doctrine as soul sleep or the state of unconsciousness for the dead in the afterlife. Um, as I said, we're going we're gonna to learn a lot about what the... We don't hear from Lazarus, but we hear a lot from the rich man in Hades. And so we're going to learn what, what, what people down in Hades think, what their thinking process is like, and it's kind of scary. All right, let's uh, thank you for your patience. It's 1130. Let's close in prayer. Father, we do thank you for all that you teach us. I know this is a difficult lesson to talk about such a horrible place. And Father, I would pray with all of my heart that there is not one soul here present among us who would ever, ever go to hell, that she would instead be a wise steward of her life and choose this very day to believe in the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ, for we pray in his name. Amen.